Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Interfaith Action Podcast. My name is Stephen Slaybaugh, and I serve as the co-director of programs and operations at Interfaith Action in Southwest Michigan. What role do stories play in your faith tradition? How do they connect us to one another, and how do they guide our action in the world? We discuss these questions and more in the following conversation that took place in March 2022 on our first Interfaith Action Principle of Storytelling. Dr. Clark Gilpin, Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago Divinity School, provided a reflection on storytelling, followed by a group discussion on the importance of listening to and telling our stories in a way that builds community and leads to faith-based action. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everyone, and um, welcome to our uh, first official conversation um, as part of our series on our interfaith action principles. Uh, the series is titled Theologies of Transformation and Actions for Justice. Um, and it's based off of uh, our 10 interfaith principles that guide our witness and work around the three thematic areas around which we're organized. And those three areas are common home, common good, and common life. We held two feedback sessions in January and February uh, to receive feedback from a variety of faith traditions and backgrounds. And um, the 10 principles we have now are a result of the work that, um, and my other co-director, Sid Moen, Clark and Bobby and other people at Interfaith Action put in, but then also integrating um, feedback from our communities. So I, I, I think I, um, I think, other members at Interfaith Action would agree that this is, these principles are, are dynamic. You know, they're part of a continuing conversation about faith and action. Um, they're not static. And so uh, we're very much looking forward to uh, these conversations on those principles, uh, starting with tonight's. Um, and before I go any further, I, I should introduce myself. Um, I am uh, Stephen Slaybaugh. I'm the co-director of Interfaith Action. Um, I'm, I'm in the programs and operations wing, and my other co-director, Sid Moen, works with uh, strategy and relationships. But it's, uh, it's my pleasure to, to be with you all tonight. I, I'm going to share our very first principle that we're going to be talking about tonight. And that uh, principle is that we recognize that storytelling is key to our faith traditions and is evidenced in parable and paradox. We commit to listening to the stories of others and to telling our interfaith story in a way that influences public life. And I did attach the, um, the interfaith principles in the chat um, for those of you who are interested in reading the rest of them. But here to lead us in a reflection on this principle is Dr. Clark Gilpin. And, uh, uh, Clark serves as the lead advisor for faith framing and interfaith action. He's also the Margaret E. Burton Emeritus Professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where he served as the dean from 1990 to 2000. He lives in Stevensville and attends the Berrien Universalist, Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, where he and his wife, Nancy, co-chair the Social Justice Committee. Um, Clark studies the history of modern Christianity, especially in relation to literature, and he recently published Religion Around Emily Dickinson. Um, but Clark was very, very involved with the discussions around these principles. So it's, uh, it's wonderful, Clark, that you've agreed to give this first uh, reflection on the principles. Um, so for about 10 to 15 minutes, Clark will talk, and then the rest of the time will be for a discussion. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to you now, Clark. Okay, thank you, Stephen. I, uh, I'm especially happy to be talking about this theme of storytelling. Uh, because it's, uh, it is one of the things that, that uh, energizes almost every feature of our social life. Whether you're talking about attending a worship service or uh, going out to dinner with friends or remembering your grandparents, uh, stories uh, build who we are. And um, so uh, this is fun. Uh, this is really interesting. And I would say it's, it's probably accurate to look back and say that 
when we started thinking about these space framing principles that Sid has, Sid Moan has really organized for us, that it arose from the fact that we started by reading an encyclical from Pope Francis entitled Fratelli Tutti. Um, and several people, as we talked about that encyclical, noticed the importance that the Pope attached to the story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan as a way to weave together the Pope's affirmations about the dignity of all persons, about respect for the migrant or civility in public debate. It was just very interesting the way his broad affirmations tied back into this one parable from the Gospel of Luke. Um, and of course that parable, that story is really a story inside a story. I mean, if you've read it uh, or, or not, you've heard about it, I'm sure. The scene opens um, with Jesus being confronted by a young man who asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus and, and the young man exchange questions and and in that process, Jesus tells the story of this man who's injured on a road and some pass by, but one uh, stops to help. And the question is posed, well, who is the true neighbor here? Okay, uh, just and it, it's, it's interesting that- uh, Stop video. For our- uh, for our larger purposes, I want to emphasize the, the way in which the story is set inside a larger story, and in fact, uh, set inside uh, a almost cosmic story. I mean, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is answered by a very specific narrative of a man injured and lying beside a road. Uh, this interchange between the deeply specific and the universal, uh, the narrative that's inside a meta-narrative uh, is a theme that I think is very important as we think about particularly religious storytelling. At the end of last month, Sid Moan sent me a passage from a book that he was reading that identifies some crucial features of storytelling. And I'm gonna use uh, it to open up a discussion this evening. The book that Sid was reading uh, is entitled Reimagining Christianity and Sexual Diversity in Africa. And this is the passage that caught Sid's attention. The writer and activist Unoma Azua, in collaboration with Queer Alliance Nigeria, collected 37 stories of members of uh, the Nigerian lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. The stories were collected in the aftermath of the Nigerian government passing legislation that prohibited same-sex marriage uh, during the years 2014. Azua highlights the political significance of resisting this damaging legislation through storytelling. Storytelling is an act of resistance. She writes, it is the hope of the storytellers to literally or metaphorically scream their messages to the world and be heard, and be heard. Perhaps through their narratives, they can draw empathy and understanding from their fellow compatriots and help prevent others from going through the same treatment. Now, let me draw out three sort of generalizations from, uh, from that story out of Nigeria. 
Uh, feel free to interrupt me at any point. Uh, hit the raise the hand button anytime you like, uh, but I'll, I'll try to, to be concise. First, stories of individual persons enable us to enter to identify with their circumstances, with their challenges, with their resilience. And note that Azua collected 37 such stories. Each individual story illuminates a different facet of a shared event. The flip side of hearing multiple stories is an experience we've all had in which a group of people are hearing one story, but thinking different thoughts, learning different things, from that one story. My wife, Nancy, and I attend the play at, plays at, uh, regularly at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. And it's always interesting to listen to the uh, discussion after the play because uh, people have heard that one story differently. And you learn uh, not only from hearing many different particular stories, like the 37 collected in Nigeria, but also hearing the different ways things are heard out of a single story. And I think this is a principle in uh, religious reflection and religious witness in the public realm that is, is extremely important. Uh, we have many stories. We also have comprehensive single stories, what I called meta-narratives, but we derive different messages from those stories. And so listening to the particular uh, and to the way people appropriate it is just crucial. Second, storytelling builds communities of people who either share experiences or learn something about themselves through hearing the stories of people who are different from you. Um, and I think the key feature here is that uh, stories of the type I just spoke of from Nigeria um, give dignity to an individual experience life experience, right? They say of this person that he or she is living at a moment in history where we matter. And I think as we consider the role of religious narratives, religious stories in public life, their capacity to say you matter is a fundamental feature of storytelling. Right. Third, as in the case in Nigeria, stories are very often built around events. In this case, the passage of some legislation that was regarded as extremely offensive and even dangerous by the Nigerian LGBTQ community. When you tell a story around an event, one of the things that happens is you give that event a past and a future. Uh, it becomes part of a larger story. Let me read again uh, from what I, I mentioned from Nigeria. Perhaps through these narratives, we can draw empathy and understanding from our compatriots and help prevent others from going through the same treatment. The story imagines consequences to the event. Uh, it imagines a future, imagines uh, a past. Often it imagines uh, core ideas that have persisted through time. And in fact, in, in, in virtually every society, um, 
there are core stories that don't simply identify individual people, but that use individual tales to tell the story of the society as a whole. Now, there are both strengths and hazards in that feature of stories. Um, on the one hand, uh, they are sources of hope, of resilience, of a sense of identity. But on the other hand, uh, they can be fragile. I mean, clearly the, Niger the leaders of the Nigerian government in 2014 had a story of Nigeria that was not encompassing of the life stories of the LGBTQ Nigerian community. Here in the United States, uh, I was reading some stuff the other day that reminded me of Ronald Reagan's presidency and the famous speech in which he spoke about the United States as the city on a hill that would be the paradigm for modern human societies. He was drawing on a sermon, a lay sermon by the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop. Winthrop had preached uh, a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity aboard the Arabella as it was sailing toward Massachusetts Bay in 1630. And it's true that Winthrop used the phrase uh, in there that they would be uh, on arriving in Massachusetts Bay as a city on a hill. But if you read Winthrop's sermon, the emphasis is not on this kind of paradigmatic, iconic, exceptional place, but on the fact that because the city would be placed on a hill, it would be clearly in the sight and judgment of God. So his point was a point about uh, responsibility, about accountability, about uh, the hazards of being drawn off into pride or other worldly emotions. Uh, and in a certain way, uh, you could almost make the argument that Winthrop and Reagan uh, are using the same phrase to communicate opposite ideas about uh, the geography <laughs> in which the two of them are living. That leads me to a final observation that again comes out of history because that's what I do. Um, and that's John Bunyan's famous allegorical story, The Pilgrim's Progress of the 17th century. There's an episode in there that I love <clears throat> in which uh, Bunyan, uh, Christian, the character who is uh, the lead persona and protagonist in the Pilgrim's Progress. Christian encounters a group of, uh, of shepherds. Encountering shepherds is not a coincidental thing in Christianity. That's a signal about, about a story we all know. Um, and the shepherds give a small handheld telescope to Christian because he's not sure he knows the way to the promised land where he's headed. And he tries to hold it up and look and see if he can see that promised land, but he's nervous and he's having trouble with the focus and the telescope is wobbling. So he can't quite see exactly where he's going. But that inability to know for certain your destination does not stop Christian. He, like those shepherds who 
left their flock to go and see the Christ child continues on his way with only a vague notion of where he's headed, but trusting um, that he'll find his way. Uh, humility, in short, is a virtue of good storytelling. Uh, the future is uncertain. Every good story has a future, but the best stories are not certain of that future. And um, their telescope wobbles, it's open, things are contingent. So uh, I think that's what I have to say. I, I hope those three, three main points uh, about stories, about uh, their, their ability to give dignity to personal life, about their ability to consolidate a community around core stories and about their necessary humility in relationship to those stories um, gives us some food for discussion. Wonderful, thank you so much, Clark. That was um, very thought-provoking and um, I think will be a great jump off point for discussion now. Um, so I'll open it up to the floor. Um, Shannon. Hey, thank you uh, so much for that, Clark. That was really, really encouraging. I wanted to ask real quick before we even go into discussion, if you could, you said at the beginning, but if you could repeat the, um, you, you talked about that that collection of stories from Nigeria, from the LGBTQ community, and I wondered yeah. um, if I could have reference so I could look it up. Yes. Uh, Reimagining Christianity and Sexual Diversity in Africa. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. I would love to look at that. This is, that was a, uh, Sid Moan, our director, was uh, the source of my information on that. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, it's, it's actually an interesting thing, you know, um, Alexei Navalny, uh, imprisoned in Russia right now, is writing uh, letters out of prison that are being posted online. Um, so these stories of personal experience as acts of protest uh, have a long history. I mean, think back to Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. Um, the power of these, of these individual experiences to shape decision-making in the public realm uh, is one of the reasons that uh, they both have power and, and, and we have, need to be cautious how we use them. Uh, and one of the roles of religion, I think, in public life is to step back from our social stories and ask, uh, how good is this story? It's interesting, too, now that I think about it, that uh, at one level, um, I started with two quite different kinds of stories. One it was an imagined story. Right, of uh, a parable of a good Samaritan. This is a fiction, you might say. The other uh, was a series of personal life experiences that we probably would drop in the category fact. But in a funny way, stories of both types have a kind of porous boundary between the imaginative and the factual. Uh, because they want to set events in relationship to a past and a future. And that's an act of imagination. So um, the frontier between fact and fiction uh, is one of the reasons uh, it's important to be both imaginative, but also careful in the way we, we tell ethical or religious stories 
in the public realm. That all of that really speaks um, to me where I'm at because and I don't know exactly what the I don't know what the experience of the other people in the group is, but um, a reflection that I've been carrying on in, in, in my tradition, which is the Catholic tradition, um, is really about the the lack of value that is given to sort of those those concrete sort of stories of people's personal experience in so many areas. And one thing one thing I've been I've I've been seeing, I feel like our the the way that the system works doesn't have room for that right now. It's it's very abstract, it's very hierarchical. It's and one thing I, I I'm a member of the Catholic Women Speak organization and one thing that we've been working on is a uh, there's a synod coming up in in next year that's um, Pope Francis has been asking for like the participation of all of the, the laity and, and the faithful. And so we've launched this survey of Catholic women which is now the, the largest survey of Catholic women that's ever been done in history, actually. It was, hmm. I think about 12,000 responses. And we had like some open response sections and just um, the women, the thousands of women who have taken the time to sort of share their stories in, in that context um, about all, all kinds of different issues and, and the ways that they see the need for reform and, and change um, has been really inspiring. And, um, yeah, and I, and I just, I feel like there's no way for the church to go forward without making room for, for those stories, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Like, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. oh, it's, that's interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I love the fact that these are stories that are being collected at a particular moment in history. Right? And, uh, so probably reading through them, you're going to find allusions to bigger stories, older stories, but they're all stories that are being retold at our moment. And uh, now, again, I think part of the genius of, uh, of religions is their capacity to, to retell an old story. Uh, in a new way, in a way that fits this moment, in a way that encourages and enables us to make decisions at a time when every decision, you don't know what its consequences are gonna be. Um, so, well. Shannon, when you've read those reflections, are there particular ones that speak to you that you could share? There's um, maybe not directly in response to the to that survey because I don't know about the I know the the, the results have a certain date or until we're supposed to, to speak about them. But one one project in terms of like women's stories that I've that I've been working on a lot is in terms with um, domestic violence, and um, I recently did a small project um, just looking at stories that women told about the responses they received and this is really limited to like um christian communities i'm sure it happens in other faith traditions as well but the responses they received from the church when they tried to get help which were usually not responses and a lot of victim blaming and a lot of like you know encouraging people to stay in violent situations um so that was a that's a, a big big recurring theme that also matches up with a lot of statistics we have about about Catholic, um, how Catholic women do in, in marriages and, and they're much less likely to leave violent relationships yeah. and resources and so on. Um, another one that I'm doing that's very, that I've been reading a lot of stories about that's very, very specific to the Catholic tradition. So it might not be so much of interest, but it's really about like Catholic teaching on sexuality specifically with um, like the anti-contraception whole thing. And so, and getting, um, I feel like there's been, there's not been a platform for women to talk about, like really devout Catholic women who, you know, try to follow all the rules and to do it right, and then have really negative experiences in there and, and, and suffer a lot of damage from that. And that's a, another project I'm, I'm trying to work on. Right, let's share those stories because a lot of people don't know, like, if you don't have those experiences, you, you 
I don't know. There's a lot of ignorance, and there's also a lot of disclosure to to what we don't want to what we don't want to know. Sometimes it's hard to know which one is which, but <laughs> those are two big themes that are that I'm very passionate about personally. Um, yeah, and that I've heard a lot of stories. Thank you. Yeah. And this on the day that the governor of Florida signed into law two bills that prohibit teachers, among many others, from using the word trans or gay. That was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's a story for you. Yeah. Yeah, and there's thousands of stories. Like think about all the people who are affected by that and who will be affected by that. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was involved. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, okay. I was just going to say, Shannon, I um, included my email. I'm not sure how that survey is being sent out, um, but I am a Catholic woman who is currently not attending uh, a local parish because of many of the things that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just saw your message. I'm seeing the link right now. <laughs> I would, yeah, please share the word, like we're trying to get as many responses as possible. And I think it's like a, a moment of, of, not of optimism because we don't have any, any reason for optimism given the, the hierarchy's record, but for hope, I think, but also um, for a little bit of, it's a little bit scary too, because in the sense that if the Vatican ignores something this big, this has never happened before. Like this is really big. If the Vatican ignores this, a lot of people are going to walk away. You know, it's like the last chance for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't want to, to focus the conversation too much on the Catholic tradition either. I, I know there's a lot of a lot of diversity here, surely. Um, but that yeah, that's where I'm coming from. So yeah, thanks for asking. Here, there's. Did you see the link? It's I, I put it in the chat. I can also send it to your email if it helps. Yes, but it's so a great I, example of how a large institution regardless of its basis, is able to define that stories will percolate up mm -hmm. or will not exist for whatever reason. Yeah. And it takes us back to the issue of power and who's holding it. Right, right. Larry. Yes, um, thank you, Clark um, and Shannon and others who have spoken. Sorry that my camera seems to be doing something weird tonight, but hopefully you can still see it, see it well enough. Um, lately, we have heard a lot of stories being told at school board meetings about what the person telling the story says is something very bad happening to their children at school. And those generally take the form of teachers talking about matters involving race that make their children feel guilty, or teachers talking about sexuality that make their children feel like there's something wrong going on here. And I think it's extremely important that different stories get told at those school board meetings stories from parents whose children have learned something about the history of race in our country that has been extremely valuable to them. Stories of um, children who have talked about um, being different in terms of sexuality and have benefited from a, a gay straight alliance at their school or from a discussion that they've had in class. But what tends to happen is that people telling the negative stories dominate and um, yell and insult the members of the school board, and they aren't countered by positive stories. So I think it would be great if um, all of us and the people that we know could encourage those positive stories to be told often. That's such a great point, Larry, and also makes me think about, um, Clark, your point about how storytelling builds communities. It builds all kinds of communities. Right. Um, but also, um, 
stories have this way of, uh, of forming us in the way we view ourselves within our communities, who's in, who's out. And um, I think um, we could agree that what we're missing broadly in, in, I mean, speaking from an American context is a sort of narrative where we see each, each person as, you know, being, you know, fully in the Christian, Christian terms, where I'm from, fully in the image of God, fully having human dignity, uh, each and every person. Um, but I think that work is a lot more difficult <laughs> than, um, than, than it's been put out to be at some point, because uh, the, fact, the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, people, um, people hurt each other very deeply. And to, to listen to those people um, is not always an easy thing or a safe thing uh, to do. Mm-hmm. So, Larry, did you want to add something? Um, no, just to encourage um, those of us who are alarmed by some of the negative stories that are being told to do everything that we can to generate counter, counter stories to that. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are many more positive stories, but people are afraid to tell them in public. During this time of pandemic, part of that has been the fear that the people who are going to go to these school board meetings and yell and scream are not going to be vaccinated and don't um, want to wear masks, and so that it's dangerous. I'm hoping that um, we are finally at a point where we don't have to worry quite so much about that and that it'll be easier um, for all of us to um, be present in person at uh, places like that to generate more positive stories. Um, Building on that, as well as something that Clark said also and your comment, Shannon, I was, uh, I'm 75 and I was actively involved in the social justice movements in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, marching, protesting, sitting in, and being arrested and doing all of that. Uh, On behalf of uh, women's rights, civil rights, um, um, and the environment. Um, One of the um, um, one element of that that I've missed as I um, uh, sort of as not sort of as I am involved today is that, and this is not a criticism, I just can't quite figure it out. Um, but one of, one of the um, uh, experiences that gave us all strength and courage and hope and remind us, reminded us of our role in love and nonviolence was the presence, the obvious presence of clergy I can't remember ever going to a small, medium-sized, or large protest of any particular type that there was not callers, Mm -hmm. and it made us all feel uh, many things, including safe, and that our voice would be protected and heard, and um, so that's something that I'm noticing is not as obvious today. Um, So something I'm thinking about. And to go back to something you said, Shannon, about optimism and hope, I would remind everyone that um, Martin Luther King wrote um, as he was composing his letter from a Birmingham jail, where he said, um, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. So, don't let the lack of optimism get you down. We should always be hopeful, um, but not always optimistic. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bobby. Really, really meaningful. Well, we actually... something that came to mind as, um, as Bobby was speaking and also um, others today that last time in our uh, discussion, 
things came up about this idea of the of a public space in order in order for some of these things to happen and so people can you know hear each other's um points of view and it, it feels like it, it perhaps is we've become more distant um and there aren't those spaces and i've been in my mind just wondering there was some discussion ar around the word table the last time how maybe a table isn't inclusive because not everybody has the opportunity to be at a table so i just over this past time between then and now when we're talking about this idea of storytelling and really hoping that there will be more places for these um, things to happen, for stories to be told. And I am a public school teacher. Um, so looking at it through those eyes and I teach first grade. So um, children are very compliant to rules. They're also very soft-hearted when they hear someone else's struggle. Um, they're also really quick to, you know, shove one someone aside because they want to be first. But when they hear, they hear the other person's point of view, um, they're able to to come back a bit. And I guess that comes back to, you know, Jesus said, "Let let us be like children." You know, they really do have soft hearts. They really are a little bit uh, able to take in other people's stories. And I believe, and there's part of that hope that Bobby was talking about, I do believe that most adults are that way as well, but we've kind of worked ourselves into this little isolated space where we don't often have a chance to come together with folks that are a lot different than us and to sort of learn to get along with them and learn to listen to them on a regular basis. And that happens in a classroom. Children come from all different places and they have to be with each other day in and day out. And I guess I've just been um, wondering and hoping that there will be a place where this interface work comes to a more broad space where more people can hear and listen and partake in discussions. Yeah, that 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 really speaks to me as well, and it's a big question that I have because it's really a, a big struggle because I feel like I'm searching for those spaces, you know, actively in my life, and I'm trying to engage people. And but I think um, somebody said a moment ago, uh, Stephen or. Or, or I don't know, um, something about it can be dangerous sometimes. Um, and I've just like, when I started doing that and trying to like make spaces for certain discussions, it's like, and I know this is a, is a very common sort of experience that people on both sides of the spectrum sort of can, can experience, but the, the aggressivity and the, the defensiveness and you know the, the, the personal attacks and all of that, it made it very, very hard and it makes you want to just shut down and go into your little shell and not talk to anybody anymore about anything. And I just don't know how to move past that to create, you can't force other people to be respectful and you have to have boundaries, but you also want to understand people and to, I don't know, it's, I, I really struggle. So I'm just sort of opening that up if anybody has wisdom to share. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know that I have wisdom to share, but I, I do think that, uh, that one way to think about the public role of religions today is that uh, we're responsible for creating an ethic of storytelling. Um, there are lots of public spaces, but in order for them to be genuinely public, they have to be uh, open to everyone. 
and they have to recognize and respect the dignity of each person there. And stories that don't promote that sort of inclusive public space, um, I think uh, it's the obligation of, of the religious traditions to say, that's not a story we tell. We tell a different story. We start with tell a story where there's infinite room at that table uh, to go back to that, that metaphor. Um, back to the poet Rumi, Persian poet of what the 13th century, I think, mm -hmm. as a marvelous poem uh, in which he concludes by saying that people enter a room and sit at a table and as they look up, the light has fallen differently on every wall, but it's still the same light. Now that's a kind of Muslim rendition of I think the ethic of storytelling. I mean, his poem is telling a story, uh, but the message of the story is that uh, they're gonna be different impressions depending on which wall you're looking at, but each wall has behind it or has shining on it the same light uh, so that there is a common place. Um, and that, you know, there, I think there, because stories are so emotionally powerful, they're easily manipulated. And um, figuring out how to create uh, a safe space for a story is almost like figuring out how to create a safe space for uh, an individual person. Uh, although in some ways, the story has uh, the power to create its own safe space if it's the right story. I mean, after all, that, that tale of the Good Samaritan is asking the question, who is my neighbor? Uh, and it, it gives a surprising answer. And I, so I, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think I wanna, I think I wanna say that in the public sphere, um, too much religion today is entering the public sphere convinced that it has the answer. And I think more religions need to trust in their ability to enter that public sphere and imagine that together there's an answer out there in front of us that none of us yet have. It's like John Bunyan's wobbly telescope. <laughs> we know the general direction we wanna look, but we can't see it clearly. And we won't unless the stories we tell uh, enrich every life, not just a few lives. I'd like to um, say and then tell a story about the, the <laughs> fact that um, if we're going to advocate for building bridges um, between faiths, between racial groups, between people of different sexual orientations, it's not so safe to do that. Mm -hmm. People are gonna get mad at us. People are gonna say, well, as, as uh, after Sandy and I wrote a letter to the editor many years ago about LGBT folks, they're gonna send us letter, people are gonna send us letters saying, you're gonna spend eternity in the lake of fire. Um, so that's gonna happen. Um, and I think we have to be prepared for it. But I'm reminded of a story from a student in a class that Sandy and I began teaching many years ago at Lake Michigan College um, that I continue to teach there. 
Sandy decided she had too many other things that she was working on. And so um, I, I've been doing it solo. Um, one of our students was a seminary student at Andrews University who said, said toward the end of this course, it's on the psychology of stereotypes and prejudice. He said, you know, I come from the South and every time this is a white student, Every time I go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, my relatives tell racist jokes. And up until recently, I've cringed but haven't said anything. And every time I leave to come back here, I feel like I've lost a piece of my soul. And I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I know that if I object, people are gonna get mad at me, including relatives. Um, but I don't want to lose any more pieces of my soul. And so I'm, I'm going to take that risk. And I think that if we all are willing to take some risk, um, and there are enough of us, then our stories can make a difference. Thank you, Larry. Yeah, that, I think that'll be the, the last word. Um, Good the last word. Yes, yeah. lovely. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, this has been a, a very enriching story. I feel like we've just touched the base of uh, the importance of storytelling for our faith traditions and also how they guide us into action in the public sphere. And we did talk about that, um, but there's so much more. So um, before I go, I want to just add um, the, um, the registration for the next conversation we'll be having, which is uh, in April, on April 25th at 6 p.m., the same time frame. And in that session, we're going to be talking about um, the political value of tenderness, which at first glance um, seems like anything but uh, what's, what's going on in our political life. Um, but Pope Francis writes that politics must make room for a tender love of others. What is tenderness? It's a love that draws near and becomes real, a movement that starts from our heart and reaches the eyes, the ears, and the hands the path of choice for the strongest, most courageous men and women. And uh, Bobby will be leading us in that conversation. Uh, Bobby Gant, who's here this, uh, this evening. So we look forward to that. And um, thank you again, everyone. Uh, Clark, thank you for your reflection. Uh, that was exceedingly helpful. And for everyone for being part of this, uh, we look forward to seeing you in April. Thank you, Clark. Thank, thank you, you, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.